0: morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Just thinking Luke's doing such a good job this morning. Until he wasn't. <laughs> just, I'm having a really hard time recovering from you not looking at the other half of the screen. I'm not going to lie. Like where's the where's the other thing? Where, <laughs> that was just great. Woo! We're going to talk about suffering today. Um, and I gotta change gears for that. Uh, we're in this series called Seven, um, working through the letters in the beginning of the of Revelation to the seven churches in Asia that, that were given these specific letters to their churches, addressing particular things that they were dealing with. But also, were meant to be letters that would continue on to the whole region and then exist in Scripture uh, forevermore for us to understand how to think about and process various issues that we might come up against. Uh, and like I just said, and like you just heard, um, the letter to the church at Smyrna is really interesting because it deals so heavily with the topic of suffering. Uh, We're going to dig into what was going on in Smyrna today. We're going to try and process through uh, uh, what they were dealing with and how the specific encouragements that John gives to them is trying to provide fuel for them to understand what it looks like to fix their eyes on Jesus from start to end so that he can flip the script and remind them of the conquering uh, power of his life, death, and resurrection. Now, but before we jump into the situation in Smyrna, I think we have to kind of deal with a bit of, the, of an elephant in the room, which is, which is how do we, a, a, as believers uh, or people exploring Christianity, wherever you would find yourself, how do we deal with passages about suffering for faith Uh, as people living in in West Michigan. How do we apply these verses to us? How do we think through them? I think there are two risks that we have to acknowledge in this. Um, One is this. Uh, it is that, that while we will suffer, uh, we will not likely or, or it doesn't seem likely that we are going to suffer in the same ways or to the extremity that we see some people suffer in the Bible. And so there's a risk that we would read about suffering in the Bible and, and we would inflate the suffering that we might experience as believers and therefore diminish the very, very extreme suffering that these people we're experiencing. I think that's one risk or one uh, pitfall that we have to avoid. Um, But the other pitfall, and if I'm honest, I think this is the one I found myself in this week, is in trying to be so careful not to make a case that we are suffering like many believers uh, did in the New Testament or do around the world, that we would ignore or minimize the fact that we as believers, even here in West Michigan, sometimes thought of as some sort of Christian haven, we will still suffer. I'm reminded of this truth, is that just because there is someone suffering or experiencing something that is more extreme than what you are experiencing, it does not take away the fact that you are experiencing that thing, right? Now, let me give you an example of that. Like, you are allowed to be sad about something even when other people are more sad than you, okay? Okay? Like, often we can do this thing, and I think it's well-intentioned. I think it's people trying to keep perspective um, where, where we minimize our own suffering, thinking that we would need to feel guilty about how we felt because there are people suffering so much more than us. I saw a post this week that somebody shared online uh, that was, like, uh, kind of talking about their life and managing their household. And it, was, it was trying to make the point that, like, hey, I have a pile of laundry to do because we have clothes to wear. I have kids that messing up, are messing up my house because my kids are, are, are thriving and active. And it was going through these things. It's like, yeah, I have to make dinner, and I don't want to, but I have food in my cupboards. And, and I see what that post was trying to do, right? It was trying to point uh, the heart of the reader towards gratefulness for what they do have, but it also, I think, was unintentionally doing something which was minimizing the stress that we can still have in those things, even though we acknowledge that we have more or, or a better situation than many might. So what we don't want to do this morning is we don't want to pretend that some of the suffering that we experience is as extreme as the suffering uh, that people in Smyrna were experiencing. We don't want to uh, kind of uh, use the suffering of the people in Smyrna to like, create fear and drum up some sort of activity in ourselves. Uh, but we also don't want to pretend that we shouldn't, as Christians in West Michigan, still understand, expect, and anticipate some suffering that might come our way because of our belief In Jesus. So, kind of having those two risks in mind, we're going to jump now into Revelation chapter 2. We'll start here again at verse 8 and we'll read what John records as Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna. He says this. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, or we're saying like angels, like he's saying, give this message through my messenger, my special protector of that church. He says, write this to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Now, perhaps you'll notice uh, that the formula here looks a lot like the letter that we read last week to the Ephesians, that the way uh, that each of these letters to the churches is started is with a different emphasis uh, on a picture of who Jesus is. Uh, Smyrna was, uh, is actually one of the only cities that still, like, exist in totality of these cities that were risen to. Um, if you want to later pull up a Google map, you can look up the city of Izmir. That's the city that is uh, Turkey in the Old, or in the New Testament, and, and this Old Testament kind of transitional period into it uh, that becomes Izmir today. Um, it was a city that was thriving in the day in which this letter was written. Like, things were going really, really well there economically. Uh, people in, in Smyrna were extremely proud uh, civically. Like they were proud of the fact that they were part of the empire. They were proud uh, of the trade that was going on in their city as it was a focal point of trade. And they were proud of their heritage. Um, existing in this uh, town of Smyrna, which was mostly, uh, uh, or was, was a Roman providence, but also contained a lot of Jewish population that, that was uh, closely tied to the Roman Empire, but was known to be very, very against the movement of the early Christians. This letter is written to the church at Smyrna. And what's really interesting about this uh, section as a whole is it's uh, one of the smallest churches that was written to. It and Philadelphia are the two smallest churches that are written to. And it and Philadelphia are the only churches where we see uh, no major weakness in their body names. I think this is a great reminder for us as a church and as a nation that that magnifies uh, power and size, that you can be small, you can be seemingly powerless, and still be very, very faithful to who God has called you to be. Uh, Smyrna is written this letter, and the emphasis that is placed on the person of Jesus in the introduction to this letter to them is that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Throughout the Bible, people take comfort in the fact that God was before all and is after all. And this is the emphasis that Jesus places on himself in writing to these believers. Not only does he emphasize uh, his uh, both like preeminence and the fact that he will continue into the future, he also emphasizes that he specifically was the one who died and came alive again. What we see here is that Jesus is seeking to start his letter to the church at Smyrna by saying, hey, as we talk about your suffering, as we talk about what you're doing, what I want you to do, church, is I want to take your eyes off of your situation, and I want you to look up to who I am. I want you to look up and see that I am eternal. I want you to look up and see that I existed before this suffering began and I will exist after this suffering began. I want you to look up and remember, church, Jesus says to them, that I am the one who died and yet came back to life. The encouragement to this church is that they should fix their eyes on Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, the first and the the last and Jesus in particular puts this emphasis on the fact that as the beginning and the end he is the one who has conquered or beat the kingdom of death um, this past like two and a half three weeks for me um, man for some reason I've just been like keenly aware of the fact that we still exist in the kingdom of death in this world um. From like, and this was this was hard, but like the relatively simple of like we had an aging dog that we had to put to sleep, and that was really really hard. Like a dog that we loved. Uh, but in the same week that that happened, like uh, one of my one of my favorite restaurants here in Grand Rapids, like a place that I think I've probably been like a hundred times. Uh, like I, it, we've maybe had lunch there, like you and I, if we've met together. This this little taco shop up on Plainfield called La Justeca. Um, they lost their nine-year-old son just tragically out of nowhere. Um, just this week, the, our kids' school like lost an employee to just a, a freak accident. Um, and I could I could go on, but like for some reason, we just had this keen awareness that we live in the kingdom of death. That we live in a time where death is real. It surrounds us. We are constantly confronting confronted with the fact that something is not right and that, that wrong and evil prevails and destroys in so many ways and so i think it's really fitting for us and it was really really key to the people in smear that the first thing jesus wishes to emphasize to them is that he is the one who ultimately has conquered death for the end These people dealing with extreme persecution, which we'll talk more about here in a moment. These people whose persecution was about to increase. These people who Paul says to them, some of you will lose your lives on the account of the persecution in my name. He starts off by reminding them, I am the first and the last. I am the one who died but came back to life. We are to be a people can find hope in the face of death because in Christ we recognize that we are living in victory over death. That even though we will experience uh, what this passage will will, uh, nuance or, or will imply is called the first death. The death that we will all experience. The death of our bodies. That we ultimately look to Jesus who has shown us that there is a way to beat it. There is a way to return from it is the first who would die and be risen back to life. So he encourages the church and in the says, look to me. I am the first and the last. I am the one who has beat death. And then he moves to specifically address the suffering that they are encountering in verse 9, saying this. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It says they're in affliction and poverty. Uh, Don't miss the simple words at the beginning of this. Uh, The first two words of verse 9 are, I know. Or I know. This is Jesus saying, hey, I am intimately aware of your situation. I am with you in this. I grieve this with you. I feel connected to your suffering. I feel connected to the poverty in which you are living in this moment. Um, Just for a little bit more context of what was going on in Smyrna, this was a place where there was such vitriol against the Christians that what was happening is there were, like, vagrant mobs of people who were angry with believers who were literally going door to door to destroy their property, to, like, rip their house to shreds. And, like, I I don't know how to make this point to you, but can you, like, even imagine that? Like, can you even imagine the terror of what it would be like to, like, lay down at night, and you don't have, like, you don't have, like, a ring camera on your front door to catch this, K, You don't have a motion-sensing light? You're going to bed every night not knowing what is going to happen to your home or your family because of your confessing Jesus as Lord. This is what the people in Smyrna were living in the reality of. This was, of course, like, led to great, like, affliction where they would sometimes be physically harmed. But but as the passage here points out, it also led to, like, great risk to their financial well-being because their property was being destroyed in these mobs. Uh, Next, Uh, It moved from just uh, poverty and affliction to also the slander that they were experiencing. In particular, what it seems was happening is is that in particular, it names uh, Jewish people in the area who, what they were doing, and this is why it says the synagogue of Satan, is it seems that that, that to uh, bring accusation against local believers as the temperature around Christianity was beginning to change in the Roman Empire, the accusations were being made about their worship as an affront to Rome and being brought in into the court system, right? So they were bringing these uh, ideas into the courts, pulling them into Roman courts that Christians might be thrown in jail for a whole variety of accusations from uh, uh, neglecting the emperor worship that was to come to uprising and organizing against the Roman Empire. If you remember, this is how ultimately Jesus is convicted and crucified is that he becomes a threat to the peace that the empire uh, held with an iron he starts to threaten their control and their power. And so these accusations begin to be made of believers by this community that was so against them. He starts to bring them into the courts, and they start to just be terrified of what people are going to say about them. And this is where we have to like pay attention uh, to that caution that I talked about earlier. Because what I don't want to do is conflate the situation that we currently exist in right now as if that we are at high likelihood in this moment of being brought to court for our faith. Because that's not the reality that most of us exist in right now, in particular not in this country, although there are places around the world where that is certainly true. At the same time, um, this idea that you might be slandered, that you might be spoken ill of for your faith, is a very real thing. Um, Many of you know, like, I've been um, in in my free time for both fun as well as just an outlet to meet people who are different than me. I've been, like, participating in, like, a whole variety of, like, improv stuff, like improv comedy around town. Um, I'm very good at it. You should come to a show. Um, That's it. That's all I want to say about it. Uh, No, like, what's happened with this, like, really is fun. I do think I'm doing okay. Um, Is is I've just developed some, like, pretty close relationships through it. Um, I think one of the things that Sarah and I, like, we've lived in a few different places, my wife and I, and, like, uh, a few different homes, and, like, we've always struggled just feeling like we've ended up in houses that just, like, didn't give us, like, natural connection to our neighbors, and because, like, for most of my life, my only vocation has been, uh, like, in professional, like, ministry um, employed by churches, like, that just takes away uh, to, uh, to, like, meet people who don't yet know Jesus, and we've kind of, like, just been, like, sad about that. Like, we just felt like we didn't have a lot of neighbors that were, like, in close proximity to talk to, um, or or our careers didn't lend to that. And just in the past uh, three years, like, God has just, like, thrown the doors open for us, where my wife went back to grad school, and we made, like, a whole bunch of friends uh, through her grad school that we, we, like, love really dearly, and, and most of them don't know Jesus. I jumped into this improv thing, and I've made, like, several close friends who are very, very far from the Lord. And so before this performance the other night, we're just backstage and, and we're just talking and like all of a sudden like the temperature of the conversation switches, right? Um and, and it literally starts to become this conversation that just made me feel like, man, I'm about to be like if they if they find out who I am, if they find out what I believe, if, if they hear that I like really believe in the word of God, that I really follow Jesus. And they know I'm a Christian. They even know I'm a pastor. But sometimes I think they, like, ignore the bulk of what I might think around certain things. And I just had this, like, overwhelming sense of fear and dread as they were talking that, like, I'm about to lose both this thing that I love and these people that I love. And And I gotta be honest, I think that was a pretty new experience for me. Like, I'm pretty good with people. I feel like I can usually, like, navigate pretty well conversations and situations and, like, keep it in the middle and, like, be a bridge builder. That's something I really love to do, and, and, like, I think I'm usually pretty good at, like, at least putting myself in situations that feel like a safer spot to, like, talk around issues that might be divisive, and I didn't feel like I had any control in this moment as they began to talk about other people and even non-believers and their thoughts on things and talk about how they should be cast aside and criticize them using strong, difficult language, I just felt terrified. I thought, what are they going to say about me? And then I had this like, really scary thought. I was like, what do I care more about? Because in that moment, I think I cared more about what they thought of me I don't think I was willing in that moment to be slandered against. And that's a long story, and that's not to twist this passage and make it about me or make it even about you, but if you felt that way, if you felt like, if I say this, if they find out this about me, then what Jesus writes to Smyrna in this passage is really important to you because, because what does he say? Is I know your affliction and poverty. I know the slander of those around you who say they're Jews and they're not. But he says this in the middle He says, But you are rich. But you are rich. Jesus does this thing uh, that, that's not unlike the way that he spoke when he was uh, on earth um, before his divinity was fully revealed. He does this thing where he flips the script, right? where he takes the cultural understanding of something, in this case, wealth, power, and he says, it's not what you think it is. Jesus here is speaking into this culture of honor, right? This culture where people wanted to have status both by what they did, what they controlled, and what they had. But, but the main currency of that was not like social cachet or independence like it was for us. It wasn't even truly the wealth or the power that they wielded. It was this concept of their honor. And what Jesus says to them is that in Christ, even though they are afflicted, like they're literally suffering sometimes physical beatings and even though they are poor, their stuff is being destroyed. Even though they are slandered and lied about and put on the public stage as fools. He says, even though all that's true of you, you have honor because of me. He says, you are rich. It reminds me so much of the way that Jesus flipped the script in Matthew 5, starting at verse 3 in this section of scripture that we call the Beatitudes, which says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Church, you and I have to fight against the cultural image of success that's in front of us. We need to be willing to trade our own wealth, our own power, our own social status, our own honor for obedience to Jesus. We may be confronted with the fact that because of our confession of Jesus as Lord, because of our belief that his way is the way for humans to flourish, because of our uh, adherence to the teachings of what he called the word of God in Scripture, that we might make less money, that we might lose close friends or even family, that we might suffer great loss in the future, be it of property, status, or power. But Jesus flips the script. And so what Jesus calls them to do, just like he did at the beginning, is he calls them to look to Jesus uh, even when they don't see the resolution to the suffering that they are experiencing in front of them. This is verses 10 and 12 of this passage where we'll close for today. It says, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. He tells the people in Smyrna, do not be afraid. He doesn't do that in a hollow way. He doesn't do that to diminish the fact that what's in front of them is scary. He says to them, do not be afraid, and then he calls them to look somewhere else. An impending persecution is coming that's going to increase in Smyrna, and Jesus and John, I think, know this. Uh, The writing was on the wall of the increase of the Roman Empire's uh, distaste for Christianity. Um, Soon, uh, worship of the emperor as a god would be uh, enshrined as uh, both an image in their society with literal statues for worship going up, as well as demanded by law. This would lead to imprisonment that was coming. Uh, Thus, the reference here that many of them will end up in prison. Uh, That that phrase there, uh, for 10 days, is a little bit hard to understand. There's a fair amount of disagreement amongst commentators of exactly what it's pointing to, but there are several allusions to long periods of 10-day suffering leading to death in the Old Testament, such as that of Daniel in the lion's den and the suffering that he went through as well as several other instances where this number is a depiction of suffering for the sake of God's name. Jesus implies that the suffering for some of them will push them even beyond the brink of their very lives. This Roman persecution, this forced worship that was coming would increase this culture of pride and allegiance to the empire and would continue to turn up the temperature for Christians in Smyrna. And so Jesus' encouragement to them is this. He says, be faithful and I am going to give you the crown. Now, is this saying... He's only going to give them the crown if they remain faithful. I don't think that's the drive of the text here. I don't think this is a do this and I'll give you this. I think this is a promise for those who would lose their lives if they are faithful to the point of death, and he believes that they are going to be, that the crown of life is going to be awarded to them. This crown is a symbol of victory, of honor and pride. It is one more example of Jesus flipping the script, that if they die this death of a shamed, dishonored person, that what awaits them in Christ is honor. Not only does he promise them honor in their deaths and their suffering, what he promises them is life. What does it mean to conquer the second death? Uh, this is the resurrection that is promised for believers. Uh, this implies, like we said before, that there is a first death that we will all take part in in some way, shape, or form. A first death that we cannot anticipate, whether through uh, natural or unnatural circumstances in our lives. He indicates that to them, though, that because of Jesus, who they are to fix their eyes on, that there is a promise of conquering for those who place their faith in Jesus. That if we are to listen to what the Spirit has to say, and what the Spirit has to say is the song of the entire universe, what the Spirit has to say is to testify to who Jesus was and what he has done, that if all they will do is listen to the words of the Spirit, that the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Who's the one who conquers? It's not you. The one who conquers is Jesus. And I read this and I reflect again on like the kingdom of death. And this encouragement in the natural sadness, in the natural disheartened feelings of all the brokenness that abounds, that Jesus has conquered it. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the start and the end. The one who will flip the script from shame to honor, who ultimately has conquered everything. Jesus is the conqueror. He will never face the second death. He is the one who rose from the dead, who died to pay for sin, to take the penalty in that first death for the brokenness of the world in which we live the promise that Jesus makes to the people in Smyrna is if they fix their eyes on him, if they listen to the word of the Holy Spirit of God, which testifies to who Jesus is, that while they may suffer in this life, while they might lose friends that have gone close, while they might lose a job or a home or money, while their influence and their power might be struck to the ground. They will never face the second death because they are held with Jesus who has conquered it. This is the word of God to encourage our hearts and to spur us on to the week ahead. Would you pray with me? God, when we're in these moments where the good in our lives and the people that we've invested in and we love feel threatened. It can be really, really hard to take our eyes off of our present situation and to look to you who has conquered all. God, my prayer for us as a body this week is that no matter what suffering we face, Lord, whether it's the direct result of our faith, whether it's the brokenness of the world that we live in, uh, God, whether it's just the frustration and anxieties of our lives. God, that as we suffer because of the world in which we live, or in particular, in, in honor to your name, God, that we would have a hope that calls us to take our eyes and to look upward to you that, Lord, we would listen to the words of the Spirit spoken in Scripture, spoken through our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, the encouragement that you bring into our lives, that we would look to you who has conquered death, that we would look to you who has brought new life. And, Lord, whether we face what the world would call shame to the point of death or poverty or affliction, whether we are slandered or beaten, whether we are tired or poor, that our hope will be held in you and you alone. Jesus, thank you for the hope that you have secured, for dying the first death that you did not deserve. Lord, that you might conquer over death and save all those who would testify to your name, who would accept the free gift of faith from you, that they would never face that second death. We love you and we are thankful for you, Lord. Amen.